In his book called The Search for God at Harvard, Ari Goldman shares what it was like to grow up as an Orthodox Jew. Orthodox Judaism, you may recognize, is a very strict and conservative form of Judaism. They follow very closely the laws of not only the Old Testament, but the laws that were added to that in writings that were known as the Talmud and other post-biblical writings. And so they have laws that govern just about every single aspect of their life. Every single aspect. We're going to hear his testimony, I guess you could call it, in a second. But they, they follow these rules that are called mitzvahs or mitzvot. You may recognize that word because Jews have a ceremony for young men and young women. For young men, it's called bar mitzvah. For young women, it's called bat mitzvah. And what that is, is when a young person transitions from being a young girl or a young boy to now adulthood. And the word bar mitzvah, for example, literally means son of the commandments. So that young child is now transitioning to be held personally accountable for the law and the commandments. And this is what is stressed throughout their whole experience. I want you to just listen for a second. Goldman described how he was raised as an Orthodox Jew. You know, as I read this book, I I might pause for a second. I couldn't help but read it through the lens of some strict forms of Christianity and some strict forms of Adventism as well. But notice what he says. The Orthodox Judaism I was brought up with never bothered itself with God talk. Instead, Judaism was focused on doing what we call mitzvahs, Good deeds which were we were told made us better Jews. Interesting. In this system, understanding the nature of God is not important. It was what? Not important. Doing mitzvahs is all that matters. There are 613 mitzvahs or commandments in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and thousands more added by the rabbis in the Talmud and the legal codes that followed. Notice now what he describes his experience. Mitzvahs shape the life. Upon waking, immediately wash your hands. Then thank God for, quote, restoring my soul after the night's sleep. After using the toilet, thank God who with wisdom fashioned the human body, creating openings, arteries, glands, and organs, marvelous in structure, intricate in design. Put your right shoe on first, then your left shoe, but tie the left one first and then the right. These are all laws, friends. Prayer, either individual or communal, comes before breakfast. Put on your prayer shawl and bind the tefillin, black leather straps and boxes containing verses of scripture, on your left arm and forehead. Breakfast is, of course, kosher. No ham and eggs here. If you are having bread, ritually wash your hands. After eating, say grace. And don't forget to wear your yarmulke. And mitzvahs don't end there. Being honest in business, telling the truth, sharing with a friend, honoring one's parents, visiting the sick, giving charity to the poor, all these are mitzvahs too. When my mother wasn't pushing pushing barakas or blessings that they were supposed to say, she was making sure I would do my mitzvahs. Ari, honey, do a mitzvah. She would implore in all seriousness. Take out the garbage. God is, of course, somewhere in the system of mitzvahs, but the practitioner 
is usually too busy to notice. Very telling experience that this young man and many Orthodox Jews have as well. By the way, I might add, if you thought you were raised in a strict family, it's all relative, isn't it? It's all relative. But here is a system of religion that is all about the doing and not an understanding, not about a relationship. How did he put it? You have it there in your study guide. If you take it out, notice how he put it. He said, in this system of Orthodox Judaism, understanding the what? The nature of God is not important. Wow. That's mind-blowing to me. Imagine if we, being Christians or Seventh-day Adventist Christians, imagine if it was not about knowing God, about knowing who He was, about understanding His very essence, His character, His nature, which is that of love. But imagine if it was just all about doing right and avoiding wrong. He goes on to say, the practitioner is usually too busy to notice. Too busy going about trying to follow the rules. Too busy trying to follow the laws that you don't even notice God's existence. You don't even notice His character. You don't even notice that He is inviting you into relationship with Himself. You know, we've talked as we've gone through the book of Galatians about this truth that many of us are trying to follow the rules as a means by which we earn God's love, we earn His forgiveness, we earn His acceptance, we earn the right to live. When that's not what it's all about at all, is it? Open the pages again to the book of Galatians. We want to spend a few more moments in this wonderful little book this morning. Galatians chapter 3. We continue on our study of this powerful, powerful book in Galatians chapter 3. And as I've been pondering this sermon this week, initially when I was writing it, I was thinking to myself, well, I'm not sure if this this sermon will really strike a chord with anybody, but as I prayed about it more and I thought about it, I became convicted that this is a very important message, a foundational message for all of us to grasp and understand. It's critical that we allow our minds and our hearts to hear the Lord on this subject. And so we want to read in Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 15. Notice what Paul says here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Notice now what Paul says. This is a very interesting little dynamic here. He says, And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the what? The promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Did you notice very interesting little dynamic that Paul is setting up there? He uses two words interchangeably throughout those few verses. He changes from one to the other as if they mean the same thing. He changes between covenant and promise. So he is trying to help us recognize that when God makes a covenant, he makes a promise. See, many of us come to God and we think, oh God, you know, you're trying to make a covenant with me. That means you have your list of things you're going to do, and now you have this list of things you want me to do. 
And if I do my list and you do yours, well, we're going to have a great relationship. But that's not what Paul says here. He says that God, when he makes a covenant, it is not as man thinks of covenants. It is as God does, and that is he makes a promise to us. That's why he says the, the promise, the covenant, is not based upon the law. It can't be based upon the law. That's because we think that God is asking us to follow the law so that we might now earn his favor. We've talked about this many times before, and we'll talk about it in the future. And we're going to get into this specific idea of God's covenant in a few weeks. But what we need to recognize is that God comes to us and he seeks to allow his promise, his covenant, to be fulfilled in us. Notice this powerful quotation by the pen of E.J. Wagner. You have it in your study guide. Just allow your mind to, to dwell upon this just for a few seconds. The covenant and promise of God are what? They're one and the same thing. God promises us everything that we need. And more than we could ask or think as a what? As a gift. I don't know about you folks, but God, I know that God is not like Santa Claus. You know, wait a minute, Christmas time comes, you better be, be nice. Because if you're naughty, I'm not giving you a present. No. God says, I'm giving it to you as a gift. It's yours to experience by faith. We give him ourselves, that is, guess what? Nothing. We're nothing. And he gives us himself that is everything. That Notice, that which makes all the trouble is that even when men are willing to recognize the Lord at all, they want to make bargains with him. You know? Lord, if you can just get me through this test, I promise. I promise I'll start reading my Bible more. Lord, if you can just, you know, cure my son of this or that, I promise we'll start going back to church. Is that what God is interested in? No. God is not interested in making bargains with him. He goes on to say, they want it to be a mutual affair, a transaction in which they will be considered as on a par with God. But whoever deals with God must deal with him on his own terms, that is, on a basis of fact, that we have nothing and are nothing, and he has everything and is everything and gives everything. God's covenant is his promise. And he says to us, if you will just receive my promise, I'm not asking you to to perform all these rituals. I'm not asking you to perform all of these pilgrimages and all these duties. I'm not even asking you to follow the rules. He says, if you just give me your heart, that's all I'm asking. If you just give me your heart, I will fulfill my covenant and my promise in your life. Problem is, like, The author says here, E.J. Wagner, we try to make bargains with God. We think God is asking us to make a covenant with him and we'll do what what we think he's asking us to do so that we may obtain something in return. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in a couple weeks. That's just futile, friends. We are not on par with God and we never will be. God is not looking for us to go into him as partners, as it were. He's not looking for us to join up with him in a law firm and, you know, he does his part and we do our part. God says, I have made a promise. I have made a covenant with you. There's a reason God calls it my covenant. Never in the Bible does he say our covenant. He says, my covenant. I'm giving you this as a promise and I will work it out in your life. Notice what Paul goes on to say. We'll explore this idea as we go further. But notice now what he says in verse 19. Of course, the, the reader naturally asks this question, well, wait a minute, Paul. What is the purpose of the law then? Why do we have the law? 
he goes to say, it was added because of transgressions. Now, this does not mean, friends, as some would like to believe, that it was only at Mount Sinai that the law started to exist. That's not what Paul is saying. Because as long as God has existed, there has been a law. But it was expressed to us clearly so that we might see the fact that we are going against God's very will and against his very nature. So God had to spell it out clearly. Before Mount Sinai, the law did exist. How else could the universe exist itself if there was no law to govern it? And so the law was given at Mount Sinai as a very explicit expression of God's character, and to show us, we're going to get into this as we move forward, but just briefly now, to show us of our need for a Savior. Notice Paul continues on to say, we go down now to verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? This may be the natural question that comes up in people's mind, and Paul does this a lot in his writings. He, he thinks up a rhetorical question so that he can almost tear it down, as it were. And usually it takes the form of, wait a minute, now that faith has come, does that mean we don't have to obey? And he says, absolutely not. Rather, faith establishes obedience. So Paul here again says, wait a minute, absolutely not. He uses this Greek term that is used 14 times throughout his writings. He says, absolutely not. No way, no how. You're crazy. He says, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Friends, we've talked about this before, and you may be tired of us talking about it over and over again, but we need to get it through our skulls. You and I cannot earn God's favor. We cannot cannot be justified in His eyes by following the rules. It just can't happen. You and I cannot make ourselves righteous. We cannot do anything to earn God's love and acceptance and forgiveness. Again, we need to hear it over and over and over again. We may have been brought up in an experience. We may have been brought up, maybe not in an Orthodox Jewish family. We may have been brought up in a strict Adventist family or a strict Catholic family or a strict Baptist family, whatever it was. Maybe a strict Muslim family, whatever it was. And we think, oh, it's all about following the rules. That's what my parents, they're pleased with me when I follow the rules. And so we get that into our mind and God says, no, 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 no. I, I love you, I favor you, I give you my grace, not because of what you do, but because of who I am and because who you are as my child. See, following the rules cannot give us righteousness or life. There's a couple of reasons that that is so. The first is because, very importantly, no matter how many rules we follow, it can never atone for our past sins. You hear me? You see, one day I could, you know, say to God, well, God, I know I've been a sinner, you know, in my past life, but now that I've learned about you, I am going to follow the rules and I'm going to follow it perfectly. Well, okay, well, let's say in theory you were able to follow it perfectly, which is a big hypothetical. Let's say you were able to follow it perfectly. Guess what? There's a whole lot of debt that you've already earned before you decide to do that. So there's no amount of obedience that can atone for our sins, of ourselves, that is. Christ's obedience, of course, can. But that's the point. It's only as we accept Christ's righteousness that we are accounted as being righteous. We are looked upon as being righteous. 
There's a second reason why you and I can't be made righteous by following the rules, and that's because, guess what, friends? We can't follow the rules. We can't. You know, we can put on this facade at times where we may give the appearance to other people that we're doing a good job, we're following the rules, we're keeping the law. But, you know, God sees beyond that, doesn't he? I can remember growing up as a a young fellow. I don't know how old I was, probably 9 or 10 years old, 11, 12. My brother and I would be left home sometimes by ourselves. You know, he was 14, 15. And we would inevitably go over to our little television and you know what we would do? We would turn on the cartoons. We would start watching those cartoons, but we would have one eye on the TV, and guess where the other eye was? It's on the driveway. You, that's right. It was on the driveway. One eye on the TV, one eye on the driveway. And the minute we saw that, remember what color the minivan was? The minute we saw that red minivan pull down that driveway, we ran over the TV, we turned it off, and we went back and sat on our couch and we looked up and twiddled our thumbs and my mother would walk in and I guess she thought we were behaving ourselves the whole time she was gone. She had no clue that we were there being unrighteous yet having the appearance of righteousness to her. See, that's what happens when you and I try to be obedient as a means of earning God's favor and earning His acceptance and trying to be made righteous in and of ourselves. God sees that. We can't fool Him. He sees us at all times. And guess what? He sees the very inner motives and agendas of our hearts. You know, something occurred to me this past week that I'm just wanting to explore with you. Maybe it's not true at all. I hope it is. But I get this idea that God actually doesn't even notice what we're doing on the outside. Let's just just ponder this for a second with me. You see, remember when Samuel went and he anointed David? What did he say? Man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. And so it's as if God doesn't even notice the outward behavior. All he is looking for is where the heart is. All he is looking for is whether we are saying yes to him. He doesn't care what we're doing on the outside. He just cares about whether we are responding by faith. It's like his eyes are like a faith-seeking missile, if you will. That's all he sees. Either we're saying yes to him or we're saying no to him. So we can't impress him by trying to conform outwardly to the law. It's almost like, I don't know if this analogy works very well, especially since most of you probably won't even get it, but it's like our hearts only speak in binary code. You know, binary code, it's computer language, if you will, that's only made up of zeros and ones. And so God looks at us, and either he sees from us a one or a zero. If we respond with zero, we're saying no to God. We're saying, no, thank you. I don't want to respond by faith. If we say yes to God, we're responding with a one. And so that's all God sees at any given moment. If this person, and they're responding with a zero or a one, that's why God, friends, is just in justifying the sinner. Because he sees the condition of the heart. He says, ah, I see that person responding with faith. And I know that if that person continues to respond with faith, their life is going to match up on the outside as it looks on the inside. 
And so he says to his angels, he says to the other beings in the universe, ah, you can't see it right now, friends, but I see it because God is described by Paul in Romans as calling those things which don't exist as though they did. So he sees us through the eyes of faith and he sees our faith responding to his faith. And he says, I know that if this brother, this sister can keep on responding with his whole heart, her whole heart to me, that they will be carried through to a a complete state that I'm working towards. Now, this doesn't give us license to sin, friends. We're going to learn that as we move forward. It doesn't mean that, oh, hey, wait a minute. You know, my heart is in the right place, but I'm, you know, going to go out and murder somebody. That's not how it works. That doesn't work that way either. But it does tell me that God is working at all of us at a different pace and a different speed, isn't he? And though we may perceive that somebody outwardly is not living the life of faith, they may, in fact, be saying yes to God in as far as he is asking them to say yes. Are you following me? That's not saying, friends, that there's no need to encourage other people in righteousness. That's not to say that we look at others and we say, well, you know, I know that person is, is a bank robber, but who am I to judge, you know? I don't know their heart. It is to say, however, that as we go and we share with somebody our, our concern for them, that we are ever prayerful because we don't know where that person's heart is. We may be thinking that we are actually being productive in our criticism of them, when they may have already been responding by faith, they just haven't gotten there yet. We may actually be turning them the other direction. So God is, is looking at our hearts and he's saying, are you responding by faith? Because that's the only thing, that is the only thing that can make a person righteous because a person who is truly responding by faith, a person who is truly saying yes to me with their heart, their lives are going to match that as well as they move forward saying yes to me. Notice what Paul goes on to say. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to skip down now to verse 23. We're going to spend the bulk of our, the rest of our time looking at this. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. This is a very important concept here. And it's really the basis for our understanding of our need for God at all. Some people look at this verse and they say, ah, this is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about those in the Old Testament were kept by the law. Until Jesus came, you know, in 3 B.C. or whenever it was he did come, until Jesus came, the way of salvation was the law. That's what Paul is saying here. But we clearly know that faith has always been the means by which a person is justified. After all, we read just earlier, a couple weeks ago, in verse 6 of chapter 3, just as Abraham did what? He believed God and God accounted to him for righteousness. Faith has always been the vehicle by which a person can be considered justified in God's eyes. That's always been the case. No one has ever been justified by keeping the law. Never. Not from the beginning of time. Not not through the ages of eternity. It has always been faith that has been the means by which a person is justified. And so that's not what Paul is speaking about here. He's not saying, listen, before the cross, before Jesus came... People were justified by keeping the law. What he is saying instead is, before faith came to us personally, you and I were kept by the law 
and the law served as a tutor. Now this word, as we see in our study guide, deserves our attention because a lot of has been made out of this word tutor. It's a very hard word to translate because it's so foreign to our modern ears. For example, many different versions translate it many different ways. One will say tutor, one will say schoolmaster, one will say disciplinarian. The word is pedagogos. Can you say that with me? Pedagogos. We get Thank you. We get the word pedagogy from it. It means to teach as a, as a way of learning, if you will. And this is the word that Paul utilizes here. He says the law serves as that pedagogos. It serves as that tutor, that schoolmaster, that disciplinarian. This is taken out of the Greek culture from which Paul was writing. What would happen is those who had a little bit of extra money to spend, they would hire this pedagogue to come and teach their children and to discipline that child and to, and to force obedience upon that child. And that, that pedagogue would, would try to, to lead that child to understand their need, if you will, of further instruction. So if that child stepped out of line, guess what? That pedagogue would go and he would discipline that child. He would spank that child. He would make sure that child was doing exactly as he or she was supposed to do. That child could not even go out of the house without being, having that pedagogue, that person present with him. So Paul says, guess what? The law serves as that in our lives. It serves as a disciplinarian. It serves as a person who points out that we are doing something wrong. It, it serves as a, as a person who, who shows us what we should be doing. But it cannot save us. It absolutely cannot save us. Interestingly, this pedagogue was able to actually protect the child, and that has interesting implications to me. Because follow me for one second, brothers and sisters. Even if we are not being obedient by faith, keeping the law can still protect us. I mean, I found that to be my experience. Let's say for the sake of an example, talk about committing adultery. You know, even if I'm doing it legalistically, avoiding that very sin is going to protect me from a lot of heartache, isn't it? So, so the law can serve, even if we are doing it legalistically, it can serve as some sort of protection for us. Far better than any other sex ed program we could ever use. But, but, but God wants us to have a richer experience than that, doesn't he? Than to simply outwardly conform to the law. Notice this powerful quotation from the pen of Ellen White. She says in your study guide there, notice, as the sinner looks into the great moral looking glass, he sees his defects of character. He sees himself just as he is, spotted, defiled, and condemned. But he knows that the law cannot in any way remove the guilt or pardon the transgressor. Are you following? He must go farther than this. The law is but the schoolmaster to bring him to Christ. He must look to his sin-bearing Savior, and as Christ is revealed to him upon the cross of Calvary, dying beneath the weight of the sins of the whole world, the Holy Spirit shows him the attitude of God to all who repent 
of their transgressions. Notice what she says here, just very much in line with what Paul is saying. The law serves as a convicting agent. The Holy Spirit uses, uses the law in his hands to bring it to our attention, to show us how we are not reaching the standard that God wants us to. It's very important that the law is established on the, in that way. You know, we have to admit, friends, that sometimes, in this generation especially, we don't want to hear that we're doing something wrong, right? Let me say that again. We don't like to hear that we're doing something wrong, right? Probably any generation. We don't want our sins pointed out to us. We don't want to feel that guilt. <clears throat> we almost feel that guilt itself is wrong. And I shared this a few weeks ago, but guilt in and of itself is a beautiful gift from God. Beautiful gift from God. Because it alerts to us that we have a problem. That's the problem with those who have leprosy. They actually lose their sense of feeling throughout parts of their body. And so that person can actually have limbs burned off because they don't feel the pain that may be happening as they're you know, their arm is in the fire or something of the sort. And that's what the law does for us. It, it, it allows us to feel that something is desperately wrong here. But we don't want to hear that these days. And I, and I know that a lot of us deal with guilt and shame already. I know that. I recognize that. Some of us have been beat over the head with this guilt-laden message. But when it's properly understood... The gospel very much includes guilt. You know, let me just use this as a very simple example just because it's very easy to, to latch on to. We'll talk about this in the future, I know, and I don't want you to misunderstand me, but just hear out my example. <clears throat> there was a young man that I went to seminary with, and he's now a pastor somewhere here in North America. And soon after, he and I both got out of seminary a year or two later, he came up and visited the Northeast. He went skiing in Vermont. And so I got together with him and sat down and had lunch with him. We went out to a restaurant and had a sandwich together. And I asked him, hey, friend, you know, how's your pastoring going? He was pastoring at that time at a church in a large city in the Northeast. He said, well, you know, I'm not really sure about this church. He said, I'm a little uncomfortable with some, the direction that some of the, the members are going. He said, for example, let me just share this with you. My very first week there, I was approached by some members of mine and with absolutely no, no uh, embarrassment at all, they asked me, Pastor, will you go out to eat lunch with us at such and such a restaurant this afternoon? And, you know, he, he was not surprised that much that there would be some Sabbath keepers who would go out to eat at lunch, for lunch on Sabbath. What he was so shocked by was that they would actually ask their pastor with very little embarrassment whatsoever. He said, you know, it seems like that guilt has just been removed and we don't quite understand just how far we've gotten away from the Lord. Now again, I'm not judging anybody. I'm not condemning anybody. All of us are at different places. But friends, the law is quite clear, is it not? The fourth commandment? I know that many of us are reacting to a very abusive usage of the fourth commandment. I recognize that, friends. But our guilt seems to have disappeared 
in our attempt to just hear the soft parts of the gospel, if you will. But friends, the beautiful elements of the gospel, the love of God, the forgiveness, the acceptance, that can only be effective when we recognize that we have a need for forgiveness to begin with. So Paul says, guess what? The law serves as that tutor, that schoolmaster, that person who convicts us of wrongdoing. So that when we recognize our need, when we recognize our wrongdoing, we can go clinging to the Savior who is able to pick us up and say, my grace is sufficient for you. My forgiveness is bountiful and it's always given to you. But we live many times in a generation where the word sin is actually a four-letter word. We don't want to hear that we're doing something wrong. Again, I recognize that many people have beat us over the head with this message, trying to just make us feel miserable. The gospel is about trying to make us feel guilty, but pointing us to the Savior who can lift that guilt from our shoulders and say, I have a deep love and acceptance and forgiveness for you. So notice very carefully, notice these two very, very important things. What I'm about to share with you may sound somewhat scandalous, but it's something I've been convicted of and I feel like the Lord has been laying it upon my heart. Notice, let's notice why, what the reasons are that God has given the law to sinners. They may, this may be surprising to you. These are the reasons why God has given the law to sinners. All right? You have it there in your study guide. Number one, this is where you're going to say, wait a minute, is this guy a Christian? Is this a pastor speaking to us in these terms? Number one, we're going to now discuss why the law was not given. Okay? The law is not given to get the sinner to obey it. Let me say that again. The law is not given to get the sinner to obey it, for he or she cannot obey it. (coughs) Say, wait a minute, Pastor, hold on. Are you preaching here cheap grace? Are you preaching disobedience? Obviously, I'm not. Maybe it's not obvious. But friends, that's the whole problem to begin with. We cannot keep the law. We cannot do it. You know, it would be like giving a, uh, sitting a first grader down, saying, now, you know, friend, let me give you this college calculus. Can you do it? Go ahead, do it. No. That child, unless he or she is an absolute prodigy, it's probably been done before, that child is incapable of doing it. So when we come to God and he, and he gives us his law, we think, oh, God's giving me the law so that I could keep it. I should obey it. I should do what it's telling me to do. But he's saying, no, I'm giving you the law not for you to obey it, but notice, I am giving the law to sinners. What does it say there? To show the sinner that he or she is guilty and needs a Savior. See, we get trapped into this very, very unfortunate and subtle way of thinking. Let's say, you know, you and I have a problem with swearing. One of us does. I do, you do, whatever. And so we come and we, we're we swearing, you know, taking the Lord's name in vain or saying some other words that aren't pleasant that we wouldn't say around our mothers. And all of a sudden, you know, the 
<coughs> the Holy Spirit comes to us and he points us to the Ten Commandments. He says, you're not supposed to be doing that. You're not supposed to be doing that. You're not supposed to be doing that. If you're like me, it takes a while for you to admit it and recognize it and to humble yourself before that truth. So you say, you know, I repent. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it. And now what do we start to do? Say, oh, okay, I shouldn't have done that. So now I will stop swearing. That's not what God gives us the law for, friends. I see some people thinking, wait a minute, what is this guy saying here? Let me say it again. We are incapable of keeping the law. We are incapable of being obedient. And so God does not come to us and give us the law so that we will obey it. Because we can't. What he is doing is pointing out the fact that we can't keep the law so that we go down on our knees and we go clinging to the Savior who can do it for us. That's the second part. Notice that second positive reason why the law is given. The law is given to show what a faith-filled life looks like. But God never gives us the law as a prescription. He doesn't say, okay, um, you know, here's your problem. I'm going to write up a prescription, go down to the pharmacy and take, you know, two fourth commandments a day and you'll be fine. That's not what he says. He gives us the law to point out our desperate need for him so that we throw up our hands and like Paul, we say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, we get into this very, very subtle thinking. We think, you know what? If a person can just understand that they should be doing this, they're going to do it. I turn on Christian radio from time to time, and you know, this problem is not simply endemic to our particular brand of Christianity. I might say that it's almost more of a problem outside of our brand of Christianity because all I hear is a bunch of good advice. You know, if we have a radio program where people just understand they should be better husbands, that will solve the problem. No, I can't be a better husband. It's impossible for me, in and of myself, to be a better husband. It is impossible for me, in and of myself, to be a better father. And the sooner I can recognize that, the sooner I can go humbly to clinging to my father who can do it for me. And I can live not by good behavior. I can live not by trying to make myself righteous. I can live by faith. With a heart that is responding to a God who is desperately trying to help me come into relationship with himself. <coughs> I might even say that it's kind of a little ploy that God does so that it will get us to come to him. To draw us into a relationship with himself. But we keep thinking that the law is given so that we would obey it. God says, you can't. You can't. Come to me. I'll do it for you. Surrender your heart to me. And when you learn, you just learn how to speak in those one, in those ones of that binary code. When you just learn how to say yes to me, I'll get you there. I'll do it. Believe me. I can. I, that's what I work. That's what I'm, I'm a professional at. 
That's what my expertise is at. It's to turn sinners into saints. I can do it. Just allow me to. Let me do it. Interestingly, notice this. I found this very interesting. Under that third reason, (coughs) the pedagogue could find and did continue as a trusted friend. This is now describing the Greek culture. That pedagogue could and did continue as a trusted friend long after the child had reached maturity. So think about this. Whereas before, the law was simply this person trying to beat me into submission, trying to get me to be obedient. Now, when I've grown up and I am living by faith, the law is now my friend. And whereas before I found it impossible to do because I was trying to do it in my own strength, within my own power, the law is now a beautiful instrument in the hand of the Holy Spirit to shape my life into the very image of God. Praise the Lord that God in Christ came down to this earth and went to Calvary to show us how much He loves us and to show us what His heart is all about so that you and I can now follow in faith the Lamb wherever He goes. I praise the Lord that God has given us the law in this capacity. Again, not to try to convince us to do something, but to convince us that we aren't living like that so that we say, Lord, I surrender. I can't do it. I'm a wretched man. I'm a wretched sinner. I'm a wretched woman. I'm incapable, absolutely incapable of doing one good thing on my own. I can't earn righteousness. I can't make myself righteous. I can't earn your love. I can't earn your favor. I can't even get out of my own way. So anytime I hear a bunch of good advice, I just block my ears because it just discourages me. Or maybe I open my ears because it does discourage me and I go falling at the feet of my Savior. You know, last weekend was a very blessed time down in Portland. I'm longing for that experience to come here to Bangor in December. It's going to be a powerful time. And I say this with all sincerity, if we're still on this earth, brothers and sisters. I thought I'd hear hear an amen. I believe that this message that is being preached at those rallies may hasten things so quickly that we won't even be here in December. Any of you brokenhearted? Any of you have plans for December? (laughs) Nothing that can't change. Amen. You know, I just a little side note. This is totally not in in my sermon originally. But um, I remember the first time I ever heard that Christ could have come back in the early 1900s, late 1800s, You know what my reaction was? I wouldn't have even been born. I'm so glad he didn't come yet. And then I said to myself, wait a minute. Who am I thinking about here? Myself or God? Because my heart, God is trying to bring me to the place where I say yes to him so much that I would rather see his happiness than my own. I've learned this as a parent. Man, I would rather see Camden or Acadia, even though she's really young, I'd rather see them happy any day, even if it's at the sacrifice of my own happiness. 
You know, last weekend we were down in Portland, and it was just a blessed and beautiful time. What an experience. What a rich experience. It reminded me of some of the experiences that were happening within the Adventist church back in the 1880s and 1890s. You read these testimonies about how the Spirit was poured out, and people bore these wonderful testimonies about how God had given them a new understanding, a new experience with Him. And that was primed to sweep throughout our denomination, and sadly it was brought to a screeching halt. And God is now trying to do it again. Amen. But last weekend... On Sabbath afternoon, after it was all said and done, after the last presentation had been given, we opened up the service for testimony time. And so the pastor there at the Portland Church, he (coughs) invited anybody in the audience who had been there for the weekend to share some new understanding, some new way the Lord had touched their hearts. And it was wonderful. People just shot up and they wanted to share. and It was just a blessed time. Some of you were there, I know, who are here right now. But there was one individual in particular that caught my attention. And that's actually Chad's sister. Have any of you met Chad's sister? Nikki, right? Kimmy, Kimmy. Kimmy stood up and she was sitting in the back there with her sister and her parents. And... um, She said, you know, I want to share something. And I had talked with Kimmy privately uh, earlier in the day, and she kind of shared some things with me as well. And, you know, she started talking about how she was raised, you know, in in an Adventist family, raised in a Christian family. But she had left the church. And I share this because she shared it publicly, so that's why I feel all right about saying her name. I trust you recognize that, Chad. So she was sharing how she left the church because she grew discouraged about all the rules, and for some reason she got this in her mind. And as I was talking with her later, or earlier I should say, she told me, you know what? I used to try and try and try and try so hard. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I know what I should be doing. But I just can't do it no matter how hard I've tried. It's not for a lack of trying. And so as she was standing there in the back, sharing her testimony, tears started rolling down her cheeks. Her heart was being poured out. She said, until one day, I heard something that I had never heard before. And that is that it's not about following the rules. It's not about me going down this list and doing what that list tells me to do. For the first time in my life, I heard it was about responding by faith to God. She said, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. She said, so I picked up my phone and I called my mother and I said, Mom, I heard, someone just told me this. She says, is it true? Is it true? And her mother affirmed what she had heard from somebody else. For the first time in her life, she was just so excited about how simple it was that God was just asking for a response from the heart. A response saying yes. And as I said, tears were just rolling down her cheeks and she says, you know, our young people, they need to hear this. They need to hear this. 
then it's not about following the rules. And friends, I know she didn't mean it, and I don't mean it either. God wants us to follow the rules, right? It's not only for our own safety, but it's for the safety of others. Those rules are a blessing from God, but only when done in the proper context, only as a response of faith, of God's faith working on our hearts so that we too live by that same faith. But it's, it's not about trying to earn it. It's not about trying to do it ourselves because as she said, I too have tried and tried and tried. I'm still doing it day in and day out, trying and trying and trying. It's not for my lack of effort that I'm not overcoming. It's not because of a lack of an effort that I'm not living this beautiful life that God wants me to live. It's because I haven't recognized that what God is asking from me is to see that I need him desperately. And when he brings conviction to my heart, he's not bringing conviction to my heart so that I now try to go out and do what I wasn't doing before. He's asking me to go on my knees as a response of faith and cling to him who is mighty to save. That's what it's all about. That's why Paul says, Therefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. A faith that is responding from love by saying yes to God. What about you, friends? Are you just going to say yes to God? Are you going to say, Lord, I need you. I can't do it. I cannot do it. I can't do it. That's why I need you.